You guys want to watch that again? I want to, again, welcome you guys and invite you uh, to open your Bibles with me. We're going to start in Luke chapter 12 this morning, and that'd be a good place to kick off. Uh, we've been going through a series the last few weeks called Upstream. The big idea here has been kind of a recognition that the world we live in has drastically shifted, that the currents of our culture have turned in ways that I think for many of us might have been unexpected, but they're very real and they change what life is like for us as Christians. For years, Christians in America could walk around with the general assumption that most people understood and generally accepted our value systems. That's really not the world we live in anymore. Ultimately, the Christian faith is not the predominant driving cultural influence. More than that, it's not even a a voice that is desired to be heard or welcomed. Things that are accurate representations of biblical values that if we were to speak 10 years ago would not have caused any controversial are very controversial statements today. And so we live in this new world and we have said from the beginning that our goal is not so much to condemn the culture as it is to equip each one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus to engage in our world around us and to learn to stand strong and to go upstream against that current. We've said a number of times that our goal as Christians engaging the world around us is to be salt and light, to enlighten, expose the truth, and then to preserve the world around us, to encourage others to seek the Lord, not shock and awe where we create uh, havoc and catastrophe, but to be there in gentleness and love representing Christ in opposition to a culture that is going the wrong way. And what we want to do today as we wrap this up is is kind of boil this down to where I think most of the conversation starts. And, And that's a basic understanding of what really matters in life and what our purpose is. Why are we here? Why did God put us here? And what is God's expectation of us as his children? And if we can answer that question, I think what we'll find is that that the smaller questions begin to kind of fall in place. So we've talked about things like, what do we do with our wealth and how should we view that? How do we uh, focus on and understand marriage and family? What's God's design there? All of these things kind of fit under this broader question about what in the world are we here for to begin with? And I think it's important that we answer that question biblically. But one of the things we have to do before we jump to the biblical answer is understanding the prevailing trends around us. I'm not an expert in gardening, Uh, But I know a few things about it, and I think there's a basic gardening principle that will guide us as we have this conversation. And I want you to think about it. If you're thinking of making a garden, I would first begin with this. Don't do it. Uh, The produce at HEB is quite good and very affordable. Um, But if you decide you must, and you want to plant some green beans, it starts with this little seed, and you go out to the yard. If you were to just walk out there, to this yard covered with St. Augustine grass and poke a little hole in the dirt and punch that green bee seed down in there. I want you to know what's going to happen. Nothing. You're not going to grow green beans. The reason you're not is because the St. Augustine grass will immediately cover over it and kill it. So the basic understanding is if you're going to plant a garden, first thing you have to do is uproot everything that's there that you don't want there so that what you want to take root will be able to. 
So if we're going to begin a conversation of what matters in life and how we should live and where we should set our targets, we have to understand first that we've got some stuff to remove, that there are things that need to be uprooted so that the truth can be planted and flourish. And so I want to begin this uprooting process and, and talk about the prevailing cultural understandings of what really matters in life. What's the purpose of life? Well, I want to be, begin with this. In a purely secular world, in a world where we begin our conversations with something like, since God doesn't exist, fill in the blank. How would we answer this question? If we don't believe in God, if there is no God, what is life about? Well, ultimately, it means nothing. Because if we have a purely atheistic view of the world, we came into being by a series of mistakes across billions of years of an evolutionary process. It was a bunch of mistakes that got us here, ultimately, by random choice, by random experiences that mean nothing, that had no guiding principle, they just happened. Because of that, our lives consist of the firings of a bunch of neurons, us responding in instinct to those genetic codes through years and years of selective processes. And in the end, it ends and it's finished. And it means nothing, and it meant nothing, and nothing goes on from there. All of life is a series of random mistakes that happen by chance and means absolutely nothing. Now, the problem with that very stark view of the world is, first, it's built on some false assumptions that are beyond anything scientific related to faith. Does God exist or not is not something we can prove in a test tube. Beakers, Bunsen burners, and great labs can't answer that question for us. And so we started with an assumption that, that, that is a problematic, but beyond that, this is an incredibly impractical statement because the reality is, is that everyone has a mission and purpose for their life. Even people who would affirm everything I said to be true, people who would say there is no God and it doesn't matter, you just have this life and then it's over, have a mission and purpose to their life. They just don't realize it. And whether we realize it or not, we wake up every day, most of us, with an agenda, with a plan of something we'd like to accomplish, some pain we would like to avoid, some goal that we would like to see come to fruition. That's our mission and purpose for the day. And if you combine all those into one aggregate, you could observe our mission and purpose for our lives, what was most important to us. And it's always something. What fills in the gap of this nothingness are a few things that I want us to look at. And I want you to note that these aren't things that only people who don't believe in God wrestle with. You and I will feel the constant kind of gravitational tug of these inappropriate and ultimately lacking missions for our lives. The first, I think for many of us in Western culture, is obvious, and it's the acquisition of wealth. You know who doesn't want to make a million dollars a year? Do you know? You would say no one. I would disagree. The guy who makes two million dollars a year doesn't want to make a million dollars a year. He wants to make two, maybe three. That's how this thing works. It is natural and normal for us to seek to acquire things. In this viewpoint, we believe that our lives have meaning and value if we're successful in building wealth. We also will value other people based upon their financial status. So if someone has wealth, we will treat them with esteem. If someone doesn't, we will not honor them to the same degree because we have evaluated them based upon one single principle, the acquisition of things and wealth. Now, this goes beyond it. See, ultimately, having things is not the joy or the security or the hope that we thought it would be. 
Economists will look at this in a couple of ways. They describe it as utility because the word happiness doesn't look good in a journal. You don't write that in scientific documents. You say utility. And so economists will talk about the joy or pleasure in purchasing something in two ways. They'll talk about acquisition utility. That means the joy in getting something. I found something I liked and I bought it. And for that moment, I was happy. And they'll also talk about what they call transaction utility, which means I was happy about the terms at which I got it. So I'm happy about the product that I purchased, and I'm happy because I think I got a good deal. Now, our companies figured this out, and that's why everything at Kohl's is always 20% off. Makes us feel better about paying full retail value because they told us it got a discount. And that's how this works, right? We get excited about the purchase of the product, the acquiring of the thing. We get excited about the terms that we got it on. And so we have what economists call acquisition utility and transaction utility. I'm excited with my product, and I'm excited for the terms that I got it. I want you to think about the problem is that we never talk about actual utility, which would be to say, I'm actually getting joy from the thing. I was happy about the getting of the thing, and I was happy about the terms of the purchase, but we don't ever go beyond that to say, does the thing deliver what it said it would do? For years and years, Leisha and I have not had cable television, which what that means is if you want to watch late night comedy, you have two choices. One is TBN, which is religious broadcasting, and there you laugh to avoid crying. Number two is the infomercials. Now, the infomercials are a great illustration of this. My favorite one is this tiny little blender that's just like your regular blender, only smaller. But if you were to watch the video of the magic bullet, you would see something different. Here's how it works. There's a black and white video of the guy with the most shaky hands in the history of the world trying to operate his big traditional food processor. He's trying to switch out the blades. We're worried he might lose a finger, and it's all black and white and quite bleak. And then... The answer to all of life's food processing questions presents itself to us in the form of this little magic bullet. And it's not black and white. It's bright color, vivid. And your hand doesn't shake when you touch it. All you do is that. And for three easy installments of $39.99, this could be yours. And notice, we don't tell you it's a $120 product. That might make you scream. Three installments of 40 bucks. And your life in the kitchen will be revolutionized. Here's the problem. You got it and you realize it makes smoothies exactly the way your old blender did. It's just little. Which means I have to make two smoothies to feed everybody. This is how this works. We get joy and excitement from the getting of the thing. And we never realize, does the thing do what it said? The most extreme examples of this is shows like Hoarders, where we have examples of people, they call that they hoard things, they purchase things all the time, they might not ever use them, they just keep them. And their houses will be overrun by it. And there's this constant lure that getting the thing, acquiring the thing is going to give us joy, but in the end, it fails to deliver its promise. Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 12. And I want you to look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15, a simple instruction and a warning by Jesus to his followers. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of, of his possessions. Jesus says you need to be alert 
You need to be guarded against the desire to have things that other people have, the desire to acquire things, because that's not where you'll find joy in life. I think it's important to note that Jesus is cautioning his followers against this. The second of these kind of weak and failing pursuits in life is the pursuit of pleasure and comfort. And this takes a lot of different looks. For some people, it results in things like drug use and addiction. For other, it's the inappropriate pursuit of sexual pleasure. For others, it's things like food, clothing, gadgets, you name it. But it's this idea that if we just were able to remove enough discomfort from life, everything would be great. And if we had enough things and stuff to kind of set ourselves up where we could just kind of take it easy, life would be good. That if we could just find a way to live an eternal vacation, all of our problems would be solved. Now, there's some problems to this pursuit of pleasure and comfort as a central piece of our life because it allows us to pursue avoiding pain or hardship, which is central to us developing character and making us the kinds of people anyone wants to be around. Because if we pursue this kind of empty life about the consumption of goods and services and pursuing comfort, we end up with these shallow, unproductive lives. And one of the facets of this that I think is taking hold, particularly in a younger generation of men, is the unwillingness to take risk because it's much more comfortable to hang out in mom's basement and play video games than it is to put ourselves out there to ask a woman to marry us or to go try to apply for a job that we may not get and risk that rejection. So... We set ourselves up with a comfortable life that avoids risk or hardship or difficulty or any of the things required to make us useful human beings. In in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, Solomon addresses this to young people. And he gives this word of caution in this kind of dry, sarcastic way. And so I want you to hear this. And I want you to think about Solomon with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek attitude. He says in Ecclesiastes 11.9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in, your, in the ways of your heart and the side of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So he says, hey, if you're young, listen, go celebrate life. Chase after the things you want. Whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you pleasure, whatever brings you comfort. Just realize that in the end of your days, you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account. Do what you want to do. It's like the boss who tells you, look, you could do it that way. That's just a bad idea. And so Solomon gives this dry, sarcastic warning that says, man, seeking pleasure, seeking comfort, that that might seem great, but in the end you're going to make an account for your life and that's going to be lacking. So we have wealth and we have this pleasure and comfort experience. The third that is taking off like crazy in America is the pursuit of fame. Now this one wasn't around for most of us. Traditionally, you had to do something to be famous. You had to be an actor or a singer or an athlete. You had to do something. Today, you can be famous for being famous. That's the Kardashians and the Hiltons. They've never done anything except be famous. It's, it's intriguing. And, and so one of the things that has taken place as social media has become more and more common, this has no longer become something that celebrities do, but become kind of a thing that everyone does. We want to be seen. We want to be seen in a certain light. One of the most entertaining examples of this recently was a video that got posted from Fox Sports at the Arizona Diamondbacks Major League Baseball game. 
And in the shot, you could see about uh, 10 to 15 college-aged girls. They had their sorority T-shirts on. They had their hair done up and their makeup on. And they spent five to six minutes of the game that they were allegedly watching taking pictures of themselves with their smartphones. Just doing this. Reshot, reshot, me with a hot dog. Can someone explain the kissy face and the jumbo dog together in the same picture? It seems to me that that should be like a mouth-wide-open shot, like a... Because it's a hot dog. But over and over again, taking the same pictures, getting it just right so they could put it on their Twitter feed, their Instagram, their Facebook, whatever it is. Sending pictures of them allegedly enjoying a baseball game that they're not watching because they're watching themselves take pictures of themselves at a baseball game. Why do we do this? It's weird. What's going on? We want to present this carefully crafted public appearance so that people will think of us in a certain way, and we measure our lives based upon how many people follow our blog, whether or not we have anything to say, how many Instagram likes and followers we have, and how many people retweet what we say on Twitter. And in the same way Jesus would say, life is not found in the abundance of possessions, I think Jesus would also say today that life is not found in the abundance of Twitter followers. That fame has very little value. And if you want to see the opposite of this, a man named John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, a very famous man for preaching the word of God to the people of God when they were least receptive to it. In John chapter 3, verse 30, as his ministry is beginning to wind up and Jesus' ministry is beginning to take off, he says this very simple statement. He must increase and I must decrease. So I'm willing to lay down notoriety and fame so that Jesus would be honored. And that's, as the church, how we ought to approach this issue. Now, here's the problem with these pursuits. Is that if we chase after them, we'll find that they weren't all that valuable. We grew up in the country in an area where uh, we didn't have real fences. We had fences to keep cattle in, but not like privacy fences that would keep a dog in. And, and Trucks would come down the road and the dogs would chase after the car. And, and, and it would run after it for a while and then it would get kind of the end of the point that it ran. It would come back and it would do the thing over and over again. Car would come by, dog would chase it. Dog never caught car. What would happen if the dog did? What would the dog do with the car? The dog's not big enough to drive it, doesn't have opposing thumbs. All it can do is is chew on the tires. And we act like that sometimes. We will spend our lives chasing after these things that if we got them, we would realize they didn't do much for us. And we get dug into that rat race. And my hope today is we're going to step out of that and ask biblically, what did God put us here for? Why are we here? What's the overarching mission for our lives that should empower us and excite us to wake up each day? And I want to begin in Matthew chapter 28 to answer that question. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has died for our sins. He's resurrected. He's giving marching orders to the church. Now, this is going to establish the mission for the church. And we say this all the time here at Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. But what I want you to think about is that the way the Bible describes the church is not just in terms of an organization. So when the Bible talks about the church, we're not talking about a club. We're talking about a people. The scriptures would say that we're the body of Christ so that we have a single mission together and it's our mission collectively, but it's also our mission individually. 
Imagine a body that couldn't figure out which way it was going. One part of the body wants to run and the other wants to sit, and that doesn't work. We have to have a single unifying mission that is not only collective for the whole church, but because I'm a part of the body of Christ individually, is my purpose as well. And I don't get to outsource it to anyone else. So I want us to begin in Matthew 28 together. In a text that's called the Great Commission. When Jesus gives the marching orders to the church. And in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. Jesus says. It says and Jesus came and said to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now before we jump into the particulars of this text. I want to show you something important in the way Jesus bookends it. He starts it and finishes it in a very important way. He tells us first that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him that Jesus possesses all power, might, and authority over all of the created world because the Father has given it to him. And he tells us at the end, he's with us always. So whatever he's asked us to do, I want you to understand that the one who has all authority and power is with us to strengthen and empower us to do what he's asked us to do. So what is that? Let's begin the way we did in high school English with the who, what, when, where, and how. Who's this command given to? How we answer this question of who's being told to go make disciples is incredibly important. At this gathering, we found those that were followers of Jesus. And the simplest way to describe this is to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a command to you. This is a command to every single follower of Jesus, not just to those who are missionaries, pastors, elders, or church leaders. We don't get to outsource this to somebody else and say, you know, I was going to tell someone about Jesus. But then I decided not to because I have a friend who's a missionary and I sent a check to them to support them. So I don't do that. I do this thing and then they do the disciple making thing. And that's how the relationship works. There's no outsourcing strategy here. What we get is a single command to all Christians to engage in making disciples. We don't get to pawn it off on a few people or assume that everyone else is doing it. So it's going to get done. We have to take personal responsibility for this. The scriptures at times will use the description of the church as soldiers, that we are part of this army of God. And I want you to imagine an army going into war, getting together for strategic planning meeting and saying, here's the plan. We're going to get all of the leaders, the generals, the officers, and we're going to send them into the battle. They're our best, they're they're our sharpest guys. Man, they've been well-trained. Now let's just send them in and we'll keep the rest of the army, we'll keep them at home. We'll just send the, the, the top guys, the professionals, we'll, we'll send them there. And the guy who came out of basic a month ago, he's not in the game. What do you think the probability of victory is if an army only sends about 3 to 4% of its force into a conflict? Incredibly small. But as the church, that's kind of the attitude we've tended to take. We have professional ministers, professional missionaries, and we attend. And as a church, you know that we've been working more and more and more to engage one another so that we're actively making disciples. And one of the things that's been really encouraging here is to see how the church has answered to that call. There's more work to be done, and we can't shirk our responsibility because this is a command given to everyone. Now the question is, what is the command? If the command is for me, what am I being asked to do? Well, there's four action words, four verbs in 
these words from Jesus. He says, go make disciples, baptize and teach. Now, if you dig into that, you find there's one that's a command. One in the New Testament, originally in Greek, is an imperative form that's a command statement. And it's not go like many of us think. It's make disciples. The central command is that you're to make disciples, people who follow Jesus. That's what God has asked us to do. And now this is a broader thing, and we're going to talk about how this happens. Because he doesn't tell us, uh, just go make disciples. He tells us a bit about what that means. He says you're going to baptize them, which means you're telling new people about Jesus, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And when they believe, you baptize them. So traditionally in the church, we'd call this evangelism, which means sharing the good news. And that's a piece of making disciples. But we don't stop there and say, okay, you believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to go on to the next guy. That's not the command. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And so the process of making disciples involves first inviting someone to follow Jesus and second, walking with them so that they become faithful and fruitful followers as well. And it encompasses this broad spectrum of moving into faith in Jesus and onto fruitfulness and faithfulness. Now, here's where we have to deal with this. When are we supposed to do this? What's the when and where to the question of disciple making? Well, the scriptures actually give us this interesting clue here. It says, go. If we were to really translate exactly the way that comes across literally, it's a little clunky, but it says, in your going or as you're going. Which is to say that everywhere you go, everywhere you live and work, you're to be making disciples. So, so what the Bible is presenting is an integrated view of life that doesn't say, okay, there's uh, work time, there's family time, there's leisure time, and then there's Jesus time. And when Jesus' time rolls around, we'll try to minister to somebody. Maybe we'll read our Bible and we'll do that then. That's not the view that God is presenting here. He's saying this is all integrated. Everywhere you live and work, you have this command to make disciples. So you go to work on Monday morning and you have a job. Now you need to do your job. You can't show up to work on Monday morning and not do your job and just talk about Jesus. You might share Jesus with somebody, but they're not going to invite you back to the job. So you've got to do the work. But as you do it, integrated into that work, you're a representative of Christ. And so you go there to do your job on Monday morning, to do it well and honor to Jesus and recognizing that God has placed you around people who need to hear the good news or maybe people who are believers that need to be encouraged and strengthened and God has placed you there at that moment. Acts 17, it says that God has placed each man, that he has defined the boundaries of our inhabitation and the seasons in which we would live. That you're not there because of an accident. You're there on Monday morning at that office doing that job because God in his goodness to you and his sovereign plan has placed you there to be his representative. So the when and where of disciple making is all the time and in any place. Because it's something we do as we go and we never stop going. We're going through life in this integrated reality and we have to remember that. We have a tendency sometimes because we've been so structured in the church's approach to ministry that we have forgotten that. We were a part of a church one time, a little bigger than Tomba Bible Church, uh, where I worked with the youth ministry there. And we had an intentional evangelism program. And it was incredibly fruitful for a long time. But one of the things that we started to see happen is that we would get a team of people together. We'd train them for evangelism. We'd go out on Tuesday nights from 7 to 9 o'clock. And we'd share the gospel with people as a way of following up with folks who visited. Or if we just knew that there was someone in the area that moved in. And we would share the gospel. One of the things that started to happen is that we would start to get people writing down their neighbor's name and address and handing that in so that we could go tell their neighbor about Jesus. Now, that's complicated because you live next door to them. You don't even need to look them up on Google Maps. 
And so we had to start kind of going back to people and say, look, this is an important part of ministry, but you live next door to them. So let's um, save the mileage and you tell them about Jesus. And you see, what happened is we begin to say, oh, no, no, no. Telling people about Jesus happens because if there's a particular team that does it and they do it from 7 to 9 o'clock and I'm not on that team and it's not 7 to 9 o'clock on Tuesday, so it doesn't happen. We can't afford to categorize things that way because we'll miss so many incredible opportunities. Discipleship, telling people about Jesus, helping them grow into faithfulness happens everywhere, all the time. Anywhere you find you, at any time of the day, there's an opportunity in front of you. Now, beyond that, I think the why question is incredibly important. Why would we do this? I mean, why would we walk away from really what is this strong impulse to kind of shift into the pursuit of wealth and pleasure and comfort or accolades of other people? Like we've said out of the gates in this process that we're asking everyone to swim upstream, which is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. So why would we willfully, voluntarily go into something we know is going to be hard when there's an easy option in front of us. 1 Peter chapter 2 answers this question, I think, with stunning clarity. If you would go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you're going to find what God has done for us through Jesus and what he's called us to do because of that. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So why do we do this? Why would we live a life committed to disciple making instead of seeking the easy path of getting things and enjoying comfort? We do this because we belong to Jesus. We do this because he's delivered us from the darkness. We do this because he's got victory over the darkness on our behalf. We do this because he has shown us mercy, because it is our joy to honor him, because it is our delight to praise him before other people, and because if we do not, the rocks will cry out. We do this because if no one tells our lost friends and neighbors about Jesus, they have no opportunity to be forgiven and are still in their sin. We do this because we love them. We do this because we love Jesus. We do this because no joy is full until it is shared with someone else. Your completion of enjoyment is inviting someone else to enjoy it with you. All the sports fans in here get that. You want someone to watch the game with you, to cheer when you cheer, to celebrate, to be excited about your team. And that's hard for a guy who likes the University of Houston around here. But that's what we want. We want someone to enjoy it with us. And that's when our enjoyment is made full. That's why if you have someone who's absolutely in love, smitten with a young woman, he'll tell all his friends about how wonderful she is. Because the enjoyment is made complete when it is shared and when other people are invited into it. And that's why we do, because we love Jesus. Because what he's done for us is amazing. And because our greatest joy is found in him, we we overflow onto other people. And because we love them, we want them to know it too. Now, I think this is big because I think we have a couple options in front of us. And I want you to see at its core why following Jesus is not just good, but better. 
that is an alternative lifestyle that's more fulfilling, more engaging, more exciting, and more adventurous than anything the world can offer us. You see, if you look through the worldly pursuits that can captivate us, in the end, they all come down to wanting to have something special about us. Wanting to experience something special and wanting to be special. But what they offer us never comes through. It never reaches what the promise was. We get offered joy and comfort and satisfaction. In the end, we get smoke and mirrors and we're left empty, acquiring something else, hoping that it's going to fix the problem again. You see, when we set our hearts on the things of the world, one of two things will happen. One, we will chase after them. And when we're unable to catch them, we'll grow disillusioned with life. If having wealth is the most important thing to us and we toil and labor and we can't ever seem to get a break, we can't ever seem to get ahead, we'll begin to have a toxic disdain for all of life. So that's one option. We, we chase after the car and we never catch it. Two, we may get it only to find that it does nothing for us. Only to find that all of its promises were ultimately empty. To look up and find ourselves living a life of comfort, flush with cash, and completely miserable. Because that's a reality for many people in America today. We thought that the acquisition of things or having fame or or experiencing pleasure and comfort would fulfill us. And in the end, it was a law of diminishing returns. And every time we expected one thing, we got another The prophet Jeremiah saw this tendency in the people of God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he began to speak to them to correct them. And he spoke God's judgment on them for sin. And I want you to see the way God points this out to them. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, the people of God felt this constant pull towards looking for satisfaction and joy in the things this world could offer. And so first they rejected God. They turned from seeking Him as this fountain of inexhaustible joy and they turned towards what He calls broken cisterns. And the imagery here is of clear, beautiful, cold spring water and turning away from that so we could go lap mud out of a puddle. And He says it never will fulfill you. And it doesn't make any sense if you're thinking clearly that you would turn away from beautiful, clear water that would satisfy the longing of your soul only to lap from a mud puddle. C.S. Lewis says it's like the children in the ghetto who are content to make mud pies unaware of what's available to them with a holiday at the sea. See, ultimately the problem for us is not that we're so difficult to please, it's rather that in our sin we're too easily pleased. We're too easily comforted by things that can do nothing for us. We're too easily distracted from what really matters to pursue where joy is found. And the scriptures say we sin in a self-destructive way when we do that. And this is where the excitement is found, is that, that in pursuing the things of this world, we find out that they, they're an illusion and they offer nothing. But if we chase after the things of God, we find this adventurous life that is expansive, that's big and has opportunity to have an impact, opportunity for joy, opportunity for meaning that we won't find in the things of this world. That the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to an adventure, to join a people of God on a global, earth-shaking mission. 
And the exciting thing to me is that the scriptures proclaim not only that, that we get to be a part of this, but that in the end, our victory is certain. Is that we're not going to go to the end of our life seeking Jesus, following him passionately, and realize that it just wasn't as good as we thought. That there'll be no letdown, there'll be no moment of buyer's remorse when it comes to God. Because he is the fountain of inexhaustible joy. And the scriptures are going to tell us that this mission to make disciples to reach the nations is not some pie in the sky fool's errand, that it's a guaranteed victory because Jesus has won it. In Matthew chapter 16, you get this exciting moment. They've gone towards Capernaum, or excuse me, Caesarea Philippi. Peter is there, and they ask Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter tells Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter with these words. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's two things incredibly important that we take away from that simple statement on behalf of Jesus. The first is this. I have always viewed this in, in some sense that the gates of hell were like coming after us to attack us and we had to defend ourselves. That's not how it works. Gates are part of a city's defensive system. So if you were to build a city in the ancient world, you would put thick walls and reinforce gates that you could close when the enemy attacks. So I want you to understand the imagery here is not of hell attacking the people of God. It's flipped. What he has said here is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because the church will be the aggressor storming the gates of hell. And by the way, they can't hold up against the army of God. This is not an encouragement to just hold on till Jesus comes back. He says, get to work with the ministry of making disciples because our victory is certain and we will crash those gates and men and women will be drawn to faith in Jesus, experience salvation and joy that's only found in him and you'll get to be a part of it. You'll get to be a part of this great adventure. But if you decide to check out and seek what the world has to offer, you'll do what Jesus says when he warned against storing up treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal and moth and rust destroy. Instead of that, Jesus would tell each one of us today to follow him faithfully and store up treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a great and loving God to us, that not only have you redeemed us by the blood of your Son, but that you have called us to be a part of this mission of making disciples, of investing our lives into other people to encourage and strengthen them so they might hear the good news and believe and be saved, so they might grow to faithful obedience and fruitfulness. And Lord, we know that this adventure is not easy. We know that it's difficult. But Father, we know that because of what you have done for us, it's worth us, worth it. And we trust you. Father, I pray that you would empower us to, to reject the lie that life is found in the abundance of possessions and comfort and accolades and honors of men. And to seek the truth that life and joy is found following your son faithfully. Lord, I pray that you would instill that in our hearts and that we would move forward as the army of God storming the gates of hell. In Jesus' name, amen.